Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, the publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're speaking on Friday, May 19th, 2023. And our topic for today, boy, is there a lot happening around this. Our topic today relates to climate change, renewable energy, pollution, reducing emissions, green jobs, and what is happening in the energy transition, the climate action uh, that is being done in New York at the state level, at the city level, and what is happening in 2023 here and in the years to come. Today on the show, we are breaking down the implementation of New York City's Green New Deal, otherwise known as New York City's Climate Mobilization Act, which includes Local Law 97 as its centerpiece. And this is a law passed in 2019 under Mayor Bill de Blasio and the city council at the time that focuses mainly in on the city's largest greenhouse gas emission polluters, which is the city's largest buildings. Implementation of the law is starting to really come to the forefront here as we go further into 2023 and look ahead to the next couple of years when this law will really start to be implemented and its insistence that those largest buildings in the city retrofit and reduce emissions through their cooling and heating systems or face significant fines. Now, the law was passed in 2019, but there's been a, a major rulemaking process that has needed to unfold since then. And that's what we're digging into now, as well as a variety of other issues happening in New York City and statewide on the issue of climate change, climate action, renewable energy, emission reduction, and more. We are speaking here just a few weeks after the new state budget was passed. And for those who've been paying attention, there were some major pieces of climate-related action in the state budget that we'll get into here today related to uh, the ability of the New York Power Authority to be owning and building and partnering on more renewable energy projects, a ban on new gas hookups in new construction of buildings, a statewide law that follows the city's own law uh, related to that, and a cap and invest system related to putting caps on carbon emissions and charging for those emissions and then investing uh, that revenue into climate action. There is a lot going on. So I'm happy to be joined today on the show by Pete Sikora, the Climate Campaigns Director with New York Communities for Change, a grassroots activist and policy group based in New York City that also works on state-level campaigns. Pete and New York Communities for Change were uh, central players in the New York City Climate Mobilization Act that passed in 2019 under Mayor de Blasio and the city council at the time, and have been continuing to focus on implementation of that law, as well as other campaigns, as I mentioned, related to things like the ban on new gas hookups in newly constructed, most newly constructed buildings happening in New York City and state, and there's timelines on those that we'll get into as well. Before I bring Pete Sikora on to discuss all this, just a quick reminder, if you missed any recent episodes of the show, or maybe this is your first episode and you want to check out others, find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. Had a 
wide variety of conversations in recent weeks and months and going back years with great guests just in the last few weeks. We've been talking uh, a lot on the show that regular listeners know about the issue of housing with some great guests. I also had Senator Gustavo Rivera of the Bronx on to really break down what did and didn't happen in the state budget. I had City Council member Linda Lee on to discuss the New York City Council's new mental health roadmap and a variety of other great guests uh, and discussions. So again, find any of those at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site, and also at GothamGazette.com. You can, of course, find our bread and butter, our reporting on New York City and state government and politics and public policy. So check out our recent reporting there. Okay, Pete Sikora, we have a lot to dig into. Pete Sikora is Climate Campaigns Director with New York <laughs> Communities for Change. Pete, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. I'm really excited about this because this is the podcast I listen to the most. And so I feel like I'm in the Super Bowl now. Ah, and hearing oh your introduction God. is just great. Uh, well, that's very, very kind. I'm, I appreciate that you listen. And I'm I'm glad to have the chance to talk today. So before we dig into all these specifics, say a little bit. I mean, you are, this is your work. And this has been your work for a while. Um, say a little bit about sort of where we're at now in New York State around the sort of effort to take on climate change, to pursue uh, a transition to renewable energy, to uh, create good green jobs and a, you know uh, economic opportunity as these changes are happening. Where are we broadly speaking? Your, your movement has had a lot of victories over the last bunch of years here. There's obviously been some frustration and when you get things passed, you know they've been, uh, negotiated in ways that sometimes you're yeah. at least somewhat frustrated on, but but there's been a lot of movement. Capture broadly speaking where you see this this movement right now in New York. You know we're we're very happy that we're winning some major advances, but you know this issue of the climate crisis is very much freak out worthy uh, because we are so far behind where we need to be. Uh, because the fossil fuel industry successfully stifled action for decades. So the pollution cuts that need to happen right now have to come at such a speed um, that it's really a major challenge. If we had started decades ago, it could have been a glide path to avoid global catastrophe. But now that pollution needs to drop very, very rapidly. And that's not happening right now. So every single day, that's a thing I think about. And the effects of that are especially bad for low income and communities of color where people can't afford to deal with disasters or even just the higher energy bills of running an air conditioner 24-7 to ward off extreme heat. So this is a very, very serious challenge for the city and state and the world. And it's a global challenge where we have to act locally and lead. So as bad as it is, it's also an opportunity to create a large number of good union jobs and save people money. So it's, an, it's it's both a crisis, but it can be an opportunity that the state should seize. Sometimes, as I'm sure you've experienced in this work, there there is the sort of concrete and the theoretical or not even theoretical, but sort of harder things for people to really kind of touch and feel and, and get in their daily lives. I think, and and tell me if your experience is different, but I think the idea that all these big buildings in New York are uh, greenhouse gas emitters, and you know the, that pollution needs to be reined in as part of the sort of global effort to take on a warming planet and climate change. 
and then that that will then have concrete impacts on people's daily lives in New York City it can sometimes feel a little out of touch, perhaps for people. It's it's a bit different than um, you know discussing, for example, um, the fact that you know climate change is is leading to uh, more extreme weather and some of the flooding that we've seen or or things like that. How do you sort of when you're talking about this with people and you're organizing and you're trying to convince people to get involved in your campaigns or to call their legislators, what are the key things that you found that work best that you sort of talk to people about and try to make make things as concrete as possible for people in the sort of immediate term or or the way yeah. in which things impact their their lives? Well, you know, it's very important for us to create good jobs that um, reduce pollution. That's the central aspect of what we're trying to do is create jobs to fight pollution. And so that's a very tangible thing. 70% mm -hmm. of the pollution coming from the city is coming from uh, buildings, energy use. And so there's large numbers of very energy wasteful buildings across the city. Just think of the apartment that every one of us has lived in or been in where it's so hot in the winter that you have to crack the window open to cool down the apartment in the winter. That's an incredible waste. And that kind of waste is also an opportunity to reduce utility bills and improve energy efficiency in those buildings, which then cuts the fossil fuel use, reduces the pollution. It also creates jobs. So that's what local law 97 is on track to do at a massive scale on large buildings, which are the bulk of that 70% of pollution. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for, from where I sit, and again, I'm not not uh, at all involved in the minutia of this work. So, you know, where I sit, I think often th there isn't as much discussion on sort of the immediate effects of some of this in terms of like, it, it gets discussed, but the idea that leading with the discussion of sort of asthma rates, perhaps, versus the discussion about the sort of slowly but dangerously warming planet you know the, 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 there's, a, yeah. there's sort of a difference there that i find interesting sometimes and and you do hear all of the discussion um you know but i wonder sometimes in terms of the the work of making this you know uh making this effort more concrete for people and getting people to sort of act with urgency or feel like this is you know this is something that those those are interesting sort of decisions in terms of framing and the way you frame uh, you know, good jobs around this also seems like an effective way to way to talk about it as well. You know, it has been politically effective and to motivate a multiracial base of activists to put pressure on specific elected officials for transformative results. That's what we're trying to do is build a coalition of the the communities that are in NYCC. This is black and Latino communities across New York City and some on Long Island. Combine that with predominantly white progressives who are already active on climate change, that's a coalition that can dominate a democratic primary. And so if you start to surface that coalition, make clear to a particular target who is accountable electorally, that's that can be a very powerful thing. In terms of messaging, there's a lot of ways to cut this issue. I personally find the fact that the city is going to go underwater while baking in relentless heat waves and being hit by extreme weather events unless we radically cut pollution right now. I find that very, very compelling. And most people do too, mm. especially as they realize that entities like Exxon have been getting away with covering up all this. So I think we find that when we explain how severe the problem is, that is very alarming to people. But of course, asthma rates are really implicated here, as are many, many other health issues 
from air pollution. A couple thousand New Yorkers across the state are killed each year by air pollution coming from energy use in buildings. So air quality is hugely undercovered um, as a source of death and sickness. Um, you know, and so that's one of the angles that we take. But predominantly, we're talking about solving the pollution problem, climate change, and creating good jobs in the process um, while saving people money. So, so that's what we talk about. Um, and so Local Law 97 is, is on track to do that unless it gets derailed in the rulemaking process that's controlled by the mayor that we will uh, get into in a moment. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, that's... it's, it's huge. Right. So, you know, maybe, I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we, maybe we will come back to some of the, this broader discussions, but let's dig in. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dig in here. So, um, so local law 97, as I said, part of the New York city, green new deal, climate mobilization act uh, passed in, in 2019 there has been a process of preparing for this implementation. The idea is to drive deep uh, emission cuts from buildings, um, which are responsible for a very large percentage of the city's greenhouse gas emissions. The law places uh, carbon caps on most buildings larger than 25,000 square feet, which is roughly 45 to 50,000 properties across New York City, if I have that number correctly. So, yeah, the, these these restrictions were were put into place starting next year in 2024. The law starts to really phase in over time, and the carbon caps, the emission caps, become uh, tougher and tougher with uh, compliance over the course of decades. Uh, with a with a target looking ahead to 2050 that all buildings have to meet zero emission requirements. Um, Okay, so that's that's some of the big picture here. Where are we at in terms of what's actually happening in the process of implementing local law 97 and these um, compliance periods that are about to begin on large buildings and their emissions? So, yeah, that's that's it. Um, there's about a million buildings in this city. Most of them are smaller. About 50,000 are over 25,000 square feet. And so they're covered by this lot. This is like a building that is a few stories tall, like a six story tall building all the way up to um, one World Trade Center in size. So it's a huge variety of buildings that are covered by um, requirements per square foot to reduce their pollution. So the law allows building owners to decide how they're going to upgrade their building. So it's it's not like building code where things are super prescriptive and very, very specific. Rather, it sets an overall target for the building, and that's the limit that they have to get under. And so it's up to the building owner to figure out the most cost-effective, best way to reach below that cap. And so those caps decline over time. And they decline collectively at the pace and speed of the Paris Climate Agreement, of the state's climate law, of the city's own laws. It's the speed that the science tells us the world must achieve in order to ward off global catastrophe. So that's the, the kind of architecture of the law. So initially, those caps are pretty easy to meet. Um, the 2024 through 2029 limit is um, so high that only 20% of buildings are, are over it. That is, these are really energy wasteful buildings on a per square foot limit. They're the types of buildings that I was talking about earlier where there's just blatant energy waste in the building. So 
most of those buildings are only a little bit above that cap. So they have a little bit of work to get under it. Um, and that's the first five years. That cap comes down dramatically in 2030 to the point where it's targeting the currently the 75th kind of percentile of energy efficiency. So for your type of building, you have to get basically to like the three quarters level of energy efficiency in 2030. So that can be a real challenge for, for uh, depending on the building. So that process, particularly that 2030 limit, is driving an enormous amount of energy efficiency work. So you have to assess your building, design solutions, and implement them on a multi-year, multi-decade kind of capital planning level to be able to bring your building into compliance if it isn't already. Lots of buildings are, are already in compliance with those standards because they are high energy efficiency. But if they're not, they're going to have some work to do. That work um, can create a lot of jobs and will create a lot of jobs. Um, a good analysis from the Urban Green Council um, pegs the job creation and economic activity at about 141,000 jobs this decade amid about $20 billion in increased energy efficiency economic activity. So this is a huge driver in the um, renovation and construction and design world. So it's a big, big increase in an industry that must scale up very rapidly at sort of Green New Deal pace. And that's going to be great for the city. It's already happening too. So there's now a boom in design and assessment and energy efficiency tools that are now being developed and being deployed rapidly in New York City. It's it's doing exactly what we had hoped it would be doing at this point. But there's a major threat that the law could be ratcheted back in the rulemaking. So, you know, the real estate industry is very actively pushing to weaken the law, really gut it. And the mayor has a big choice here. He can either side with working New Yorkers who need jobs and cleaner air and to fight climate change and to lower utility bills, or he can side with the real estate industry which wants to weaken and eliminate these kinds of requirements because they don't like dealing with them. So, you know, that's a big choice for the mayor to make, and we wanted to make the right choice. Say a little bit about that rulemaking process. So this law is in place. Uh, this is this work is mostly taking place at the Department of Buildings. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and and the rulemaking process is underway with an initial wave having been announced. What, where is the opportunity that you cite? You know that you, that you reference there for the mayor to potentially walk some of this back or or water it down or gut it. Where are we at in that process, and when would that happen, or or how would it happen, and what what should what should people be aware of or watching for in that process to know this is either going to happen fairly stringently, or there's going to be some sort of watering down process that you're getting at here. So you know, like most New Yorkers, I was not familiar with New York City's rulemaking procedures. Um, you know, this is actually akin to at the federal or the state level when there's a big regulatory decision like the EPA will make some sort of decisions in a regulatory process guided by a law. This is like that, but at the city level um, and implementing local law 97, which has a lot of uh, decisions that need to be made by technical experts at the Department of Buildings in rulemaking to then implement the law. And I'll describe those in plain English in a moment. But the good news is that the folks who are in the Department of Buildings and credit to the administration where it's due, 
so far they have been doing a really good job of implementing some of the basic regulations and rules and putting them into place. There's still some very big decisions to be made, but they've had a very, very good and well thought out process so far. And that's a credit to the former administration, the mayor de Blasio, who hired folks and brought them in and to the current administration for actually driving a professional process so far. But the biggest decisions are still to be made in rulemaking. Those are two things. Number one, whether they're going to create a gigantic buyout loophole by allowing building owners to purchase something called a renewable energy credit in place of actually improving their buildings and reducing their pollution. So they could buy what's known as a REC, a renewable energy credit, which is a credit to some renewable energy created in a renewable energy project and say, hey, we're buying a credit from a project uh, that's doing renewable energy. So therefore, we're now not going to have to hit our pollution reductions because we're doing this nice thing and buying uh, a REC. Mm. That needs to be tightly limited because if RECs are allowed to take the place of energy efficiency improvements, that means that there won't be pollution reductions and we will lose tens of thousands of jobs. So there's a lot of detail there and numerical stuff, but that's one big rulemaking that needs to commence and needs to be done right. There's a consensus among experts, 26 council members, advocacy groups, um, and practitioners about what those rec limits should be, but the real estate lobby wants them to be very, very loose. That is, allow building owners to buy recs in place of complying with the law. So that's one big rulemaking. I'll pause there because I'm saying a lot of stuff before I describe the other big mm-hmm. rulemaking decisions. Yeah. So is there is there a timeline that we know of on the rulemaking around the renewable energy credits? Is there is there is this something that could sort of be be adjusted at just about any time as long as they you know comply with the law for review of the rulemaking process and the public comment period and anything they need to do around that is this something you, you know do we know exactly could this happen in iterations How, how's the timeline go on that well let me talk about my favorite subject which is uh rulemaking procedures by the city <laughs> um boy a real uh, a real fun topic hey that's but, what we do hey that's what we yeah. do here Here we are doing the civic thing. Thank you for doing this. Uh So the rulemaking process at the city level um, commences when they propose a draft rule, and that publishes on a website that the city maintains of rules. And then there's a 30-day public comment period that is finished with a hearing where people can show up and say what they think. They can submit comments. After that 30-day period, the administration then takes those things into account creates a final rule, publishes it, and 30 days later, that's the rule. And effectively, that's the law, the rule of the law, same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's going to happen, we think, soon on uh, these big rulemaking questions. They already did a whole bunch of them that were completed uh, just before the the new year. So a bunch of that has been done, and the REC one, we think, will commence relatively soon. So very important. So that's a big one. I mean, that's, that, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really big, big deal. And that's something that, um, as you mentioned, folks in the real estate industry are really lobbying hard on. There's there's material, there's studies coming out from folks in real estate that talk about um, the importance of decarbonizing. Uh, they say, you know, the built environment and addressing climate change and so forth, but looking to sort of either loosen some of this or push timelines back or make changes with the argument that um, 
there's going to just be almost an, an impossible amount of work to be in compliance, and it's just going to lead to hundreds of millions of dollars in fines assessed. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, the the industries, you know, can't they the lobbyists can't say out loud that we want to maximize our short-term profits and not have to be made to do work that we know we should be doing but don't want to do because it's a big pain and there's upfront costs. So, they can't say that out loud. They have to at least pretend like they actually want to address pollution and believe in energy efficiency and all of those things. So, you know, they use what I sort of call like high civic um, which is when corporations talk about like their duty and responsibility. And of course, we were all in this in the same boat. We want to fight climate change. We want to create good jobs. But it just turns out that, you know, what you're actually proposing would just uh, is completely unacceptable and impossible. And it's just fear mongering in this case. In fact, the law is very reasonable. It's stuff that is hard to do for many buildings, but it's stuff that they should do. And for many, if not most buildings, they will save money over and above the costs of financing the improvements because they'll see lower bills, lower operating bills, lower utility bills. And that's a big, big plus and what makes it all viable. So many of these over the projects- course, will, Over the course of quite a few years. Exactly. So it's like anything with your building where you go and you have to pay an upfront cost of the, you know, the roof repair or the stairs or the, you know, the envelope, whatever it is, those things happen in every building. There's capital planning for those things. And generally speaking, Building owners go, they get a mortgage or a loan, and then they use that money to do the improvement, and then they pay off the loan over time. And so with energy efficiency improvements, the simple ones pay off in like a year or two. If you're talking about like LED light bulbs or slight improvements and tweaks to systems, the more complicated improvements pay off more like 10 or 15 years, or maybe even 20 years, or in some cases, they don't really pay off at all. But overall, under the law, building owners are going to be able to do stuff that makes sense on a multi-decade level to build into their capital planning to actually do energy efficiency as opposed to energy waste. And that's in many cases going to be a paying proposition for the building owners over and above the cost of the financing. But it does take a lot of work and thinking and planning and designing. So, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two things on that. Go, go even, I was going to ask you to do this. You started doing it about, you know, the lighting go a little more concrete. What are we, what, you know, in terms of uh, energy efficiency upgrades, in terms of retrofits, what are the main things we're talking about here? You know, make this very sort of uh, yeah. real, real life for people. Yeah. Uh, the simple stuff is things like LED light bulbs, um, putting insulation on heating pipes that are currently exposed, um, window caulking, you know, very simple kind of things like that, tuning the boiler correctly. That's the really simple stuff. Slightly more complicated is putting in sensors and controls to optimize the building's operations and control the building systems in a way that drives down energy use. And there's a lot of new software and products for that kind of approach. It's pretty amazing technology stuff where you're taking into account when the building systems operate and optimizing to things like the weather, the wind, the angle of the sun, the occupancy of the building, real-time feedback from sensors and controls operating automatically with people uh, helping to guide that process. So that's the more complicated stuff that can save a lot of money. And then there's big capital improvements like a much better boiler or furnace 
windows that are much better sealed, better insulation, better roofs, a better elevator. Those are the, the kinds of tangible things. So the law doesn't require any one of those things. Rather, it says, you building owner, you hit this target, you do what you think is, is the most cost-effective and the most effective for you. And so it gives them a lot of flexibility to figure out how to, how to take that path. So that's the concrete work that's going to get done. And you can see why this creates a real big boom in jobs because it's a lot of work that employs a lot of people. Many of those are, are, are good union jobs too. Mm-hmm. Let's come back to the good union jobs in a minute. Some of what would have to happen in many buildings is a plan for uh, overtime a major overhauls of their heating and cooling systems and such. That's right. That's right. So you have a yeah. heating or cooling system. Your boiler is typically going to last maybe 20 years. So instead of simply replacing the old gas boiler that is conking out with a similar, maybe not that efficient model, you can improve that system to a very high efficiency system or, and this is a choice for the building that you know people will have to make over time, or go to completely off fossil fuels by going towards um, heat pumps or other systems like that that can deliver heating and cooling through electricity and higher energy efficiency as opposed to burning fossil fuels in that big boiler in the basement that everyone has. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit about the, the jobs at hand and what is and isn't being done to ensure that you know people have access to these to these jobs um are there uh city programs that are in play are there uh, things just sort of you know the 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 law is creating some of what you're getting at in terms of a market response which was hoped for in terms of design and other things but is there also a market response in terms of uh, workforce development programs that go along with some of this work. You know what's what's happening to ensure, as you got at early on in this conversation, um, you know that especially people in disadvantaged communities have access to some of these good jobs that are that are being created here. It's a great question. So you know this is a lot of job creation, um, and it's the kinds of jobs that already exist out there. Um, there's nothing particularly different about energy efficiency work as like installing more energy efficient windows as opposed to less energy efficient windows. It just creates more of that work. Um, So it employs more people in the construction and renovation industry over time. So what we've seen is that um, our members, African-American, Latino members tend to be the last hired and the first fired in a lot of these industries. And so as employment goes up, that has a disproportionately positive effect on lower income communities of color where people don't have access to those jobs. So on a macro level, a lot of job creation is particularly good for NYCC's membership and for you know, most of the city. So that's, that's a very, very good thing in and of itself. At the same time, there's a boom in the more Um, design-oriented architecture kind of jobs where you're figuring out what to do with the building. You're monitoring it over time. These are more kind of white-collar type of jobs. Again, these exist. They're just growing very, very, very rapidly right now. There's a huge boom in that. So this is a great time to become an electrician or an energy efficiency consultant 
this stuff is going to boom in New York City. And we hope to take this, um, you know, statewide and nationwide as well. So, you know, that's the kind of jobs. Um, in terms of workforce development, the city and the state and the feds can play a very supportive role in helping to pay for training and programs. The city has only limited levers to actually control the private sector job market, um, but it should employ those levers. So where the city has money that it's spending in support of these laws, and we can we can get into that, it should attach conditions to maximize good union jobs and hiring from low-income communities of color into career track positions. So all of that should be happening and is part of our agenda. Um, but the law itself is driving that that boom. So that's that's the that's the overall picture on jobs. Uh, and and in the same sort of vein of question on the retrofits and the upgrades to the buildings themselves, the city has some programming in place to to help building owners do some of this. What what's happening around that? Um, you know, I think some people, of course, will sort of very often say, okay, you have a, a sweeping new law in place. Yes, it would apply to some of the, you know, um, the Goliaths, right? And some of the big players in the real estate industry and some of the really big building owners and and often, you know, people that are do- doing doing just fine. But then who, who sort of barely meeting the benchmark to, you know, be required here and will they be struggling? Um, and so it's the sort of, you know, potentially the smallest buildings that fit the category, right? That you were getting at um, when you talked about the range of buildings here. And I know there's exemptions for certain types of buildings, affordable housing, uh, all affordable housing, I believe, and some others. Um, but say a little bit about what is and isn't in place from what what you are aware of to help some building owners, co-ops, et cetera, to to comply with the law when they may be among the sort of least, um, you know, the, they meet the threshold just barely. Yeah, the city has some really good programs. Um, so the primary one is called the New York City Accelerator. Um, it is a, a very in-depth advice and referral and help service where you can talk to experts who can guide you through this process. Um, so it's free and building owners can take advantage of it and they are. Um, and then there's also the New York City Energy Efficiency Corporation, which can provide financing solutions. Um, there's, um, there's, those are the two biggies that the city is, is doing right now. There's other things like the Urban Green Council, the Building Energy Exchange, which provide case studies and good analysis and good advice for building owners as well. You can take free courses through um, CUNY, the Building Institute there. There's a lot of stuff available for you to bring yourself up to speed on this topic if you're a professional or a building owner. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the attacks on the law are coming from um, folks like Douglas Durst, who it runs a real estate empire and really hates this law. So he's a billionaire, has a large portfolio of, of buildings, and has been attacking this law from the jump, one of the major opponents of it. And so, you know, he has a very sophisticated set of people working for him that are going to manage this process for his buildings. They know that they can comply and they will comply over time. And they know that the law is fair, even though they they will sort of maintain in public that it's not. 
that's your kind of typical revenue member, real estate board of New York member. They're a big, sophisticated real estate operation with people who do this professionally, large numbers of them, entire departments, and they can implement this stuff. And they know that they can, and they don't want to, but they don't want to be forced into it, but there it is. At the other end of that is a small co-op or um, small condo, like a like a building that has um, you know six stories, might have up uh, eighty units or something like that. It's an unsophisticated board. Maybe it's a dysfunctional board. Mm-hmm. It might be a building that has a lot of deferred maintenance issues. That is, they've been shirking on their basic job as running their asset, and so the building is in poor shape. The board is not very good at their job. And now they have, you know, a lot of things coming due. So, you know, they have to deal with fire code. They have to deal with lead paint. They have to deal with um, with sewage requirements, with all sorts of requirements on a regular basis. And so it's not new for them to be dealing with some set of city requirements. But, you know, here's another one that's that's going to require a higher level of energy efficiency. But over time, what will happen is that it will improve those buildings operations because they will actually have to become rigorous about how they plan for the future and what are they going to do. And that should be a positive process in the end. But, you know, if you're living in a, in a building there where the board really doesn't know what they're doing and has poor professionals, perhaps in a unhealthy relationship with their main contractor or a professional agent, I'm not saying that's the, the typical situation. This is an outlier situation, but that could be a real problem. You know, you got to you got to yeah. get your act together as a building owner now. Yeah, I mean that 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 sort of who I was referring to, and I'm I'm glad you uh, laid that out. Are there are there any grant or loan programs at play? Is this something the city yeah. should be? Uh-huh. There are, there are. So yeah. I mean, there's the obviously federal... mortgage. You know, you can <laughs> do things uh, mortgage related, but uh, but that's different. Yeah, totally. So you know, the the federal bill, the IRA, um, has a bunch of money in it. Um, that will help building owners with this uh, for electric, electrical upgrades and energy efficiency upgrades. So that's very helpful. The state, through an authority called NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, has a lot of programs that can be very helpful for building owners, including grants, advice, loans, payments for you know everything from assessment to operations to capital upgrades. So those can be very useful. The city has some programs like that as well. But I will say those programs should get bigger in the amount of money that they move and tap and help subsidize working class co-op and condo owners over time because we want to help those owners. Those owners should get help because they're working class and some of those buildings are going to be challenged because they won't have simple paybacks on this. It might be a little more expensive for them. So, you know, eventually you're going to have to get a new boiler this could help that kind of an owner pay for that. Um, and then you attach good job requirements to that and all sorts of social benefits so that good people get employed who, who need help. Um, so, so those are the kinds of things that should happen. We think that the city should be spending about $150 million more um, per year in the coming years to help working class co-op and condo owners. But the truth is that the underlying requirements are fair and they should be complying with them anyway. So um, it's not that they have to spend this kind of money to make the law work, but that would be helpful for those those kinds of owners. Um, mm. Who should not get help is the kind of billionaire owner I was describing before, like a Durst organization. They don't need subsidies. They should get subsidies uh, for this kind of stuff. Um, they they don't they they can handle it just fine on their own. Now, 
but but along those lines, questions inevitably come up on anything like this. Um, we just saw this playing out, um, you know, at at the state level with some things that we'll get into in a moment. But questions inevitably come up to say, well, what's to stop anybody who has to lay out these expenses from passing on a significant portion of it to uh, renters? Um, is, you know, how much of a concern is, is that? And, and how much of a challenge is that, especially as the state is also failing to do just about anything on housing, whether it's eviction protections or vouchers or building more housing or, or just about anything, which we've discussed plenty on this show. We don't need to get into all that. But, um, if you talk about passing off any additional costs onto, onto renters, then you get into, you know, again, more questions about who can and cannot afford to live in the city. Totally. That's right. And, you know, I'm really glad you asked because this is, this is handled in the law and I want to explain it. So the, um, we should also get into enforcement, which is the other big rulemaking, but in terms of, of renters, um, one big thing about the law that really matters is that rent regulated buildings are not covered by that main standard under the law. Um, that is, they don't have those caps. Instead, they have a, a, a much more prescriptive set of very simple, low-cost improvements. And the reason for that is because state law has a system where it regulates rents, where landlords are allowed to charge major capital improvements, MCI rent hikes for major capital improvements. So if the city would require those buildings to do and comply with the main standard of local law 97, and that building has to do a major capital improvement as a result, then they could stick that as a rent hike on the tenants and have the tenants pay for that. And while the owner is reaping most of the benefits and complying with the law. So that's unfair. So rent regulated buildings, because of the way that state law works and allows MCIs are not covered um, by the main standard. So that's one big thing. And that's that's a lot of buildings. Um, so state law needs to be changed and there need to be programs created to, to deal with that, that issue. And that's a big challenge for us. Um, on the free market side, you know, people are, are in, you know, a bad situation in the New York City rental market because landlords charge absolutely whatever they can, you know, get away with in the market. And so, you know, landlords, you, you've had them, I'm sure, they tend to be ruthless rent maximizers. So they are charging whatever the market will bear. So that's that's their price point. They're charging as much as they otherwise can already. Known as, otherwise known as business people, but yes. There you go. So, I mean, so that's they're, the they're, other way to get it. Yeah. yeah. Here I, I mean, am, like housing activists. Yeah, I, I, that, I get it. No, I, I mean, I, I understand your perspective, but that's also just called, you know, trying to maximize your, your profit. But but I understand I understand hey, your, where you come from. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in a certain, a certain system and, you know, there it is. So, yeah. you know, I think for most New Yorkers, rent is a real crisis. And, you know, rent regulation is broadly popular. Good cause is super popular. Those things are in place and in other states, just across the river, good causes in effect in New Jersey. And, you know, last time I checked, New Jersey has not imploded into a, uh, a, a houseless hell. Um, but here in New York, um, what what they're doing is essentially in the free market is charging what they can. Right. That's so so you can, you know, put that however you want. But that's that's the reality. Yes. So the law doesn't change um, that dynamic. What it does change is what the landlords are required to do. So, you know, their underlying cost structure doesn't shift very much under this law because of the dynamic that I was describing before, which is that 
energy efficiency improvements tend to lower costs. So in a lot of these buildings, it actually makes sense for them financially on their cost structure to do these improvements. They're not doing them because they're kind of challenging or they don't really want to bother with it, or the payback period is is too long for their kind of profit model. Um, but it doesn't really change their underlying cost structure. They have to borrow more money, but they they can um, they they have cost savings as well. So, you know, if the if the underlying cost structure is not changing much, there's not a whole lot to change the underlying dynamic there, mm-hmm. and they're already charging the maximum rent that they think they can. So, we're not concerned that in this case, local law 97 is going to lead to higher rents in market rate housing. Um, if that makes sense, you know, so yeah, I mean, we I mean, are very sense. concerned it's about very it overall. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. I mean, we're super concerned about the massive rent hikes overall. You sure, know, which, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's interesting. Um, okay. Before we get into a couple other things, we don't have too much more time uh, together, but um, you wanted to say something about enforcement mechanisms in local law 97. And oh my goodness, this is big, right? You know, so so the law is, you know, has real teeth to it. It's backed up by penalties. And, you know, Mayor Adams is very, very quick to, you know, enforce the law against low-income communities of color, whether that's like a street vendor or somebody who is committing a crime of poverty, like jumping over a, a, a turnstile or you know, is in a homeless encampment that the, the mayor is ordering busted up. You know, he's very quick to enforce the law there. In this case, we want that enforcement applied to building owners to make sure that they actually comply with the law. So it's like just like any other situation. You get a speeding ticket if you break uh, the, the, the speed limit. Here, you get a fine that is proportional to the level of your um, pollution uh, over the cap. Yeah, exactly. It's $268 per ton over your cap. So um, so that can pile up if you add it up across every single building in New York City and assume that no one is going to comply with the law. That's the kind of headline numbers that the real estate lobby is using to scare people. They're saying there's going to be millions, if not billions of dollars in fines, but that assumes that people are not going to comply with the law. So the rulemaking proceeding that's that's going to come up here is how do they apply fines and how do they deal with all kinds of specific situations um, that come up in this? And broadly speaking, what we don't want is reduced fines, delayed fines, or systems that allow landlords to hire consultants to essentially game it, game the process to make it look like they're complying, but they're not really actually doing improvements. They're just creating a paper trail that the Department of Buildings would then stamp and say, yes, you are complying. But in fact, all you did was hire a consultant and start kind of representing things as compliance. So that kind of gamification of enforcement or reduced penalties or reduced fines, that would be a disaster because building owners currently are highly motivated to comply with Local Law 97 because the administration is pointing out that at the end of the day, you have to comply, there are penalties. But if they pull back on that or create systems to allow people to get out of paying penalties easily, that would start to undo the law because landlords would very quickly, building owners would very quickly realize, oh, this is toothless. This is like jaywalking. I don't actually have to pay attention to it. I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's that's the basic concept. And the renewable energy credits come into play as well. Bingo, bingo. So there's um, two things, two yeah. big rulemakings. Now, Mayor Adams, in most of his comments about this 
he's been asked many times and in, in part because of, I think a lot of your prodding of people, you know, uh, uh, say, <laughs> saying, you know, Hey, uh, you know, they may be looking to water this down. Um, you know, he's been asked a few times and his main response is we don't want fines. We want compliance. And well, and- right, mm-hmm. right. No, that that's inarguably correct. Of course, you know, so, but, um, but, but open, but those comments, again, opening the door for saying, well, he might be talking about compliance on a different timeline or, you know, in a different, right. in a exactly. different way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because the underlying coded message is I'm reluctant to assign fines. I don't actually want to do that. And, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, maybe at the end of the day, I'm not going to do it. Um, and so when, you know, when he was first won the primary, his comments were pretty disturbing about this issue. Um, but they have firmed up over time. And I think that's in part because, you know, a coalition of groups that we work with, NYPIRG, Food and Water Watch, Triage, and then other groups and experts and interests, we're all pressing the administration to do this right. And I think what they're seeing is hundreds of people coming out to rulemakings. That was in, in the fall, events, rallies, protests, all of those kinds of things saying, we want you to fully implement and enforce the law. 26 council members have signed a letter like that. There's a decent amount of media heat on this. And so, you know, the mayor should do the right thing here and do it because it makes sense substantively. But also we're trying to create the politics where it becomes very difficult for him to then sell out to the real estate industry if that's what he wants to do. So, you know, that's that's what we're hoping to do. So these rulemakings, we want the draft rules to be tight and good and what we're recommending as opposed to creating loopholes. So in the next few weeks, we expect that there's going to be the beginning of action on on these big questions. And so, you know, it's a nervous time for a lot of us who really care about this topic, you know, because we we don't know what they're going to propose. We know it's coming and it's going to be incredibly important to get it right. Before we move on to other things, is there anything else we should mention on Local Law 97 that we didn't get to? Any other big pieces of the puzzle here that you want to make sure to to throw out there for people who are oh, just getting up to speed I, on this or or being refreshed on it? I could just go on and on and on about subparts we, of Local Law 97. Yeah, it's a big deal. To, yeah. Well, well, I'll give you one. Like okay. so, so you know, you've heard of carbon capture, right? Oh, before you get to that, I just I I realized a couple minutes ago I didn't want to interrupt you, but I. I We've been very focused on residential here, but this also applies to office buildings. Oh, yeah. And it applies to the city's buildings. It applies to NYCHA. It applies to everything. Right. Um, It applies differently to public buildings and private, but it applies. I wanted to ask you, sorry, sorry, I didn't bring this up sooner. um, And and we'll get back to your point. I think that was related to carbon capture in a moment. Um, Is there any room in your mind for um, something that might relate to office buildings because of the ways in which we're seeing such challenges with the office market and the fact that the value of office buildings, uh, some office buildings has been really coming into question. Obviously, there's issues with office occupancy and leasing. You know, there's all these questions around the the office market in New York City based on COVID trends and work from home and hybrid work and all that is reconsideration of the of the um emissions from office buildings and those retrofits and those fines and where office buildings fit into this law is that something in the rulemaking process you see as a place for any wiggle room given the precarious state of office real estate in New York 
I'm sure you will be shocked to hear me say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we're not concerned about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the office buildings, which actually uh, about most of their energy use is electricity already. That's different in residential buildings where most of it is fossil fuels in the building. Um, but um, they're actually on the best track here. And they have the highest motivation to bring up to higher standards because they're actually under pressure from tenants and banks and um, institutions who want to reduce their carbon footprint. And this is very much a thing in the commercial real estate market where um, big tenants, banks, backers, they want them to reduce um, their carbon footprint for those corporate entities that are renting. So a lot of the office market is pretty motivated to actually improve um, on this right now. So it's um, there's an additional motivation for them. And then just you know, in ways that I'm happy to describe, it's actually easier for um, commercial real estate to comply with the law. So, you know, as you know, a, a person on the left who is very progressive, you know, I like to stick it to the man here a lot. But so I would like it in to for the office market to actually be harder to comply. But you know, that's kind of like the kind of guy I am, the kind of organization we are. But wait, wait, in wait, fact, wait. it's actually easier for them. You know, <laughs> so I mean, you hit on something really interesting, which is worth discussing for a minute. People hear you say that, and in all seriousness, I mean, I know you're, you know, I don't know, half joking isn't probably. Even I am right. joking. Yeah. I'm joking. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say half joking is probably, you're, you're probably not joking even half. You're probably, you know, an eighth joking when you say that. But, but people will hear something like that. And, and, and some of, you know, obviously you come, come from the work you do and your perspective, which you've been talking about. Um, but people will hear something like that and say, exactly. These, you know, these leftist activists, they just want to stick it to the, you know, stick it to the man. They want to stick it to the wealthy building owners. They don't really care about, you know, um, this crisis in, you know, potential crisis in real estate values in the office market, which again, some people point out, could potentially be very disastrous for the city's bottom line, which supports, you know, tax revenue and the city budget and then, you know, the social safety net. So I don't know. I mean, you say you, you just said you're joking, but I think people will hear something like that and say, see, it's just about sticking it to people. It's not, right, actually, right. It's not actually about getting to the best outcome. Well, I mean, the underlying reality is that the requirements are reasonable. They're not going to cause um, a larger problem in uh, a market like that. Right now, it's obviously murkier for office um, space. You know, there are optimists, there are pessimists on what the long run trajectory is. They're not minting money as fast as they used to in the commercial kind of class A office market. It's a tougher market now, no doubt. So that that is definitely true. Um, but the underlying reality of what the law requires is perfectly reasonable for those buildings to comply. And in fact, it's a stronger business case for them to comply. So mm-hmm. they, a lot of these entities were already moving on stuff like this. Like, for example, the Empire State Building is a leader in this space. There are some of the larger entities that have already been doing energy efficiency improvements, not because they're like bleeding heart liberals like, like I am, mm-hmm. you know, but because they're actually capitalists who want to save money and market their buildings better. So you know, there, there's more motivation in the office market to do it. But in terms of sticking it to the man, like this is a city where the top 1% take about 40% of the income generated in the city. The bottom 50% get about 5% of the income. That top 1% is virtually all white. The most of the city is not white. So, you know, there's some real inequalities here. And so, you know, 
I'm not sympathetic to a billionaire real estate owner. I think that they should pay and I think they're the right people to pay and they should not be getting away with polluting and destroying the planet and being the biggest polluter in New York City, threatening all of us globally for nothing. And that's what they've been able to do for decades. So it's a it's a mind shift right now that is happening where I analogize it to like, if you were a factory owner in like, I don't know, 1920, you were just dumping the toxic waste in the river and that was completely normal. But then rules came into place that said, you can't dump the toxic waste in, in the nearest river and just call it a day. You actually have to be responsible for that. This is that, but for air pollution coming from buildings. So it's a, it's a mind shift. These owners have to actually start to embrace their responsibilities. And if they don't, the planet, we're all cooked. So these are very high stakes and you know they should comply and they should have already been doing it. Gotcha. I'll also say that Mayor Bloomberg to his credit, attempted to pass something like what Local Law 97 became, and he ran into a buzzsaw of opposition from the real estate lobby that killed that in 2009 and 2010. So I'm not real sympathetic to the real estate lobby saying, you know, this is too much for us. Maybe they shouldn't have killed this in 2009, 2010, and now they're trying to kill it, and, you know, here we are in 2023. Or at least water, water it down. Um, exactly. All right. right. Well, un- understood on your perspective there. So um, you wanted to mention something. You were starting to say something that you wanted to throw in about Local Law 97 that we hadn't gotten to related to carbon capture. And then I want to quickly get get your thoughts on um, uh, one or two things that happened in the state budget and how they relate to stuff the cities has done or or could do. Um, but go ahead on, on your point that you were getting into before I interrupted. Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, <laughs> thank you again for examining these issues. So, you know, carbon capture has a lot of buzz around it. Um, there is, this is the concept that you can um, take the uh, greenhouse gas pollution that you're generating, capture it, and then like put it away somewhere so it never, you know, cooks the, the atmosphere. It doesn't release into the air and Therefore, everything's hunky-dory because you capture the carbon and you put it away. So, you know, there's now nothing in the law that allows or that um, to be done for buildings. And it's kind of a marginal technology for buildings. But there is a little bit of hype on an entity that is putting carbon capture into large buildings in New York City. And, you know, we think that that is a little bit of a mirage that has a lot of unanswered questions attached to it. So, you know, carbon capture, a big buzzy thing at the national level. It's very important in environmental policy. In buildings, it's more marginal, but there's been a lot of hype generated by this entity called Carbon Quest. And I think there's a lot of questions about whether that technology is actually reducing carbon or if it's actually dangerous and not reducing carbon. So that's something I wanted to highlight, you know, if, if I had time and I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Um, very good. So um, let's just let's just touch. Uh, you were you were part of um, a, a more recent winning campaign here on the All Electric Buildings Act that passed as part of the state budget, prohibiting fossil fuel hookups for heating equipment uh, and other things in new construction of buildings starting in 2025 uh, for seven stories or fewer, and 2028 for just about all new buildings with with some exceptions. Um, that follows the city enacting a similar law. Is there a difference in the timeline with the with the state one and the city one? I don't have that on. Yeah, it is. That that's yeah. where we lost a little bit in the sense yeah. that the governor opposed a, a a timeline that matched the city, which is which is unfortunate because each year that the state delays is another 
um, you know, roughly 20,000 homes and buildings that are locked into um, fossil fuel infrastructure and polluting. So there are big consequences. People pay higher bills in those buildings. They don't enjoy savings. So, you know, the timeline is a longer, a little longer than we wanted at the state level. Nonetheless, it is a huge deal that New York State is now the first state in the country to buy law and fossil fuels in new construction, new buildings. That is a thing that has gigantic consequences within the gas industry because about 10% of gas used nationally in buildings is used here in New York City in residential, in, uh, in New York State. So that market's growth, at least in new construction, is now cut off. That is a huge impact both on new construction and kind of architecturally within the industry. The writing is now very clearly on the wall, and we need to actually move much faster than just the new building. So, you know, that's a big win. Um, people will save a lot of money. It will create a lot of jobs, and it will clean up the air and fight climate change. So, so that's yeah. good. Yeah, and, and, and there's not, you know, there's not particularly, um, you know, there, there there was a lot of sort of um, uh, controversy, let's say, around the question of, oh, are they coming for our gas stoves and all this? And and in the end, the result was basically just about new construction. And the only major question mark there is, will the state's renewable energy sources, all the wind, solar, hydropower. Um, you know, will it be ready? Will the storage be ready? Will, will everything be ready to make it all happen on the timeline that it now has to happen? I mean, that that that's sort of the essence of things now in terms of the concerns that people have, right? Yeah, I mean, if if you remember the big right wing freak out over there coming for your gas stoves, you know, that is now kind of a Republican thing, you know, a gas stove, and um, you know, the city and the state, you know, correctly understood that that makes no sense. In fact, about 20% of childhood asthma in New York state is caused by indoor air pollution from gas stoves. And it makes sense when you think about it, because you're burning a substance indoors, poorly ventilated, that goes straight into your lungs. And that does have demonstrable serious negative health effects. And the stuff is now becoming popularized the same way as it did with the tobacco industry. So, you know, there's, uh, I think what happened is, is that some PR executive inside of the oil and gas industry, you know, sent out the memo to Fox News and all those people to freak out over gas stoves. And they did. Um, and I think that was a mistake for them because now tens of millions of Americans are aware of the fact that there actually is some air pollution problem with their gas stove. And it is something that people should worry about. And they should look into induction stoves or induction cooktops, which are much faster, more precise. They boil water in like two minutes, literally flat. It's more powerful. It's better. And you can use it. So, you know, if you're concerned about the air quality effects of indoor air pollution from a gas stove, you're right to be concerned. It is a serious thing and you should consider addressing it. Um, and that is and that, that brings up. Yeah. 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 And that, I mean, that seems like something where if the governor wanted to sort of back off or, or there wasn't the appetite at the state level to insist on. Um, a requirement that when people are replacing something, they have to go electric, that it's something they could look at um, incentivizing in different ways, correct? Yeah, and, and IRA does that. Um, so, right. you know, uh, that's an important thing. There needs to be a transition for a lot of reasons off of gas. And for gas stoves, there are a very small percentage of the overall gas use in a building. It's about maybe 5%, depending on the building is of the gas is going towards, you know, stoves. Most of it is that boiler or furnace. 
Um, but the air quality effects are really serious. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very valuable to, to, to make that transition in, in the real world. No one is coming for your gas stove. Like the EPA is not about to bust down your door with like the UN and pry your gas stove out of your cold, dead hands. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, while we have our last couple of minutes here, anything else you wanted to, to raise? There were obviously, I mentioned in the introduction, there were some other major climate related measures passed in the state budget, the beginning infrastructure of a cap and invest program, the build public renewables act, a version of it. Um, or Yeah, those are big. Okay, those yeah. are big, big things. And, you know, we could spend a ton of time on it. And I Always on your shows, I'm like, my goodness, (laughs) we should talk about this more. And, you know, this is one of those moments. But, um, you know, the the cap and invest thing, build public renewables is big. That will help to give the New York Power Authority the direction to actually build wind and solar and and the stuff that's necessary um, in order to make this transition. And, um, you know, that's a great thing. And there's all sorts of benefits of that, including good union jobs, lower costs, things like that. We support that. We didn't play a major role in passing that. Um, we were focused on the gas, uh, on the, on the new gas, uh, on gas in, in new buildings, cap and invest. This is just massive. If done right, if done properly, a cap and invest program would put money in working people's pockets. It would create hundreds of thousands of good jobs and it would slash pollution for all communities across the state. It is the centerpiece of the state's climate plan, some sort of structure like that. That climate plan was created by the governor's appointees, by the governor effectively, and it's supposed to be turned into regulations and law by the end of the year. But the governor being, you know, kind of very perplexing about policy choices um, has been attacking her own climate law, which she has in other contexts called nation leading over and over and over again. So she's been attacking both the climate law, its requirements, and making a, a, an exaggerated fear-mongering argument about costs springing from a cap and invest program, um, when in fact it could be a really good program to save people money who need it, working people. So, you know, there's a big thing going on there where there's authorizing legislation that just passed in the state budget. The state has to begin a rulemaking regulatory process. Sound familiar? There it is at the uh-huh. state level uh-huh. yeah, to, to create that program. And the governor should create a good program that accomplishes those kinds of objectives I just said. Now, personally, and for NYCC, we think a cap and invest program, that is way too complicated. I can explain it, but it's it's a very complicated kind of system. What we really think should happen is just they should tax the rich to generate the money necessary to make the investments and then require uh, pollution to be cut and subsidize it. That's a lot simpler than a cap and invest system where you cap pollution you reduce that cap over time, people must buy, that is corporate entities must buy allowances to pollute. There's a price on those allowances. Then you take that money and invest it. Um, and then you worry about raised energy costs and how to mitigate that or exceed it. That's a very complicated system. And that's the system that the state has chosen to go down the path with. Mm-hmm. It's got to get it right. And that regulatory proceeding needs to start. Unfortunately, the governor just announced yesterday that she's going to delay that process. So this is a big thing. They put it in the state budget. It's a centerpiece of the state's climate plan. And they just said that they're going to delay that process in a way that 
almost certainly means that those regulations will not be in place on the statutory deadline of the end of the year under the climate law that she calls nation leading. So it is a big mess. She should get it right. She should get her act together, do this right, do it in a way that puts money in working people's pockets, creates good jobs, slashes pollution everywhere. That's what we need. Not this like nebulous, which side am I on, just kind of perplexing swirling uh, over this issue. We don't have time for that. We've got to solve this crisis and the, and take advantage of the opportunity of job creation and money saving. Well, I'm hopefully going to be speaking in the coming weeks and months with some state uh, officials who are involved in that work. So I'll be uh, asking them about where, where that process is heading if I get a chance to speak with them again. Um, I'm going to let you go. You've had a bunch of these wins. Uh, we talked about next steps on some of them. Is there another campaign already underway? What's the next frontier here? We don't need to go into all the details, but what's the next sort of big fight on climate policy that you're working on or thinking Heck about? Yeah, let's go. You know, so <laughs> no there's, there's always a next yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, we, we, it would be nice to not have a next thing for once, but but, you know, we have to deal with the top source of pollution statewide, which is uh, buildings energy use for, for climate pollution. So, you know, we want to tackle that at the state level. Um, we would want to tax the rich to create a Green New Deal effectively. That Those are our next big things. We care a lot about cap and invest. We care a lot about the New York Heat Act passing. That's an important thing. Um, so that's at the state level. At the city level, um, one other thing that's really important is that the pension funds have divested from oil, gas, and coal that was uh, the result of a campaign where Scott Stringer, Bill de Blasio, Tish James decided to do that thing to their credit. We were pushing them along with many others. Now the current controller is furthering that with completing divestment and laying out a plan for how to get asset managers to that the city uses to actually begin to change the global finance system so that it's not pushing money on automatic into oil, gas, and coal. Just the big banks um, like, for example, Citibank has just put in $300 billion into oil, gas, and coal development in just the past six years alone. The scale of this stuff is trillions of dollars. The New York City pension funds can make a big, big play happen here to help us tackle this problem. So there's a lot on the on you know okay. going on. Never a dull moment in our work and in your coverage. All right. Pete Sikora is Climate Campaigns Director with New York Communities for Change. Pete, thanks for the time and the thoughts. It's good to catch up on all this. And we'll be obviously, uh, you've given us, given me and, and listeners a lot to watch for in terms of the implementation of some of these major uh, laws, the rulemaking processes, and, and all of the things that are happening around uh, around some of these laws. So thanks for the time and the thoughts, and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy to have been on this podcast. I really love it as a listener. Thank you again. Uh, thanks for joining me.